Well, today is Epiphany, where the church celebrates the coming of the Magi. And if you're here Christmas Eve, uh, I, I did a sermon there about the Magi, the wise men, and what we do and do not know about them. Uh, but, but actually, as I was researching the Magi, I found a whole bunch of really interesting stuff and interesting legends about the Magi that I had never in my life heard before. And they were too good to not share. So today I want to kind of explore the Magi a little bit more with you. And I, I do want to say there's a handout in your bulletin that I made earlier in this week. And I've really changed the order of the sermon since I made the handout. So we're kind of going to start at the back of the handout. and then, But uh, it has the pictures and it has the scriptures uh, that I'm going to use. But I'm, I'm just warning you that... The handout has changed a little bit, or the sermon has changed since the handout was made. Today we celebrate Epiphany, sometimes called Three Kings Day. It's on January 6th. So here's how that works. It's the 12 days of Christmas, and then Epiphany. Okay, so this is the 13th day, or the first day after the 12 days. And Epiphany is in the calendar, and it runs until the beginning of Lent. Normally, there's this thing called Mardi Gras. It's a Fat Tuesday. It's a day where you sort of eat and you celebrate and you, you eat all the stuff that you're not going to eat for Lent. And that really marks the end of uh, Epiphany. And then you go into the season of Lent. And it comes actually very quickly this year. Uh, Ash Wednesday is like the middle of next month. So it's a lot earlier this year than it has been the last couple of years. One, of my, one, one fun part of Epiphany is called King's Cake. King cake, uh, three kings cake. How many of you have had king cake? A lot of you have, because there's somebody around here that likes to bake king cake. And uh, it's a fun sort of special cake. Uh, and, but, but normally with king cake, there's something hidden inside. Uh, there's normally either a, a figurine of a, one of the three wise men, one of the three kings, or a, a figure of Jesus. And uh, once, the, once the king cake is cut, if you get a piece that has baby Jesus in it, you win a prize. Now, you can tell why we don't always do that, right? There's like liability and stuff about putting babies in cakes. Uh, but so there, there's a fun celebration there. And in the, in the Spanish-speaking world, the, the three kings actually give presents. And so if you look on the back of that handout there, you can see this picture. It looks like three Santa Clauses sitting there with children on their lap. Those are the three kings. I didn't know that. In a lot of, Spanish, a lot of uh, Hispanic uh, cultures, the wise men, you actually wrote letters and they would ride camels instead of reindeer. And on Epiphany, you got a present. It was like the last day of the 12 days of Christmas came from the Magi or the wise men. One of my favorite Epiphany customs is called a house blessing or the chalking of the door. At the bottom of that page, I kind of describe it for you if you want to do it. But what happens is you, you pray a blessing on your house or a priest will come and pray a blessing on their house and over your door, they'll take chalk and they'll write what you can see there, which is the year divided. Say So it would be 20 on one side and 24 on the other. And then you get CMB. That has two meanings. One is the name of the legendary name of the wise men, Casper, uh, Malchior, and Balthazar. But also in Latin, it means Christus Mansionum Benedict. May God bless this house. May Christ bless this house. And so uh, a lot of families will do that as part, and I've used that as a children's sermon before, where you take chalk, you can go home and do it with your grandkids. 
pray a blessing over your house, and then right over the door, what you see there. And the early church loved Epiphany. It was like a big deal to the church. I mean, it's such a big deal that you find the wise men carved in a lot of catacombs and sarcophagi. You can see on the front, page, front of the page there um, two carvings from early catacombs and sarcophagi where people actually were buried with pictures, I mean, the equivalent of what we have, a tombstone. The wise men were that important that it became... The other story you get a lot on catacombs, by the way, is Jonah. And we'll, we'll look at that in coming weeks. They loved this story. Um, and they, they tended to celebrate the story and tell this story and to then start to tell sort of fictional accounts that expand on this story. And so if you follow this, they, they actually um, made up a lot of stuff to kind of fill in gaps in the story. And as we go, you're going to find some of them tend to be a little strange. So everybody just relax. We're going to have a little bit of fun here with some of these legends of the wise men. To begin, let's clarify a few common misconceptions about the Magi. And now we are back on the front page of the handout. First of all, just to, just to clarify a couple things, they do come after the birth of Jesus. Okay, based on Herod's calculations, Jesus might have been up to two years old. But we, do, we absolutely know from the text that it says that the wise men come to, uh, to Herod in Jerusalem after Jesus was born. So they're not there when Jesus is born, maybe much later. And here's the other thing. Jesus is baptized at eight days. He's blessed at 40 days, probably. And the text seems to say that when the wise men come, that very night, it almost seems, Joseph gets a dream and they flee to Egypt. So it has to be at least 8 to 40 days late, and it could be up to about two years later that the wise men come. We don't know exactly who the Magi were or where they were from. We don't even know how many there were. Okay? We say we three kings... The text does not say that they were kings or that there were three of them. We're going to see where that sort of develops here in a little bit. They don't follow the star until after coming to Jerusalem. Go back and read the story again. They see the star. It's a sign that a king is going to be born. They go to Jerusalem and then they celebrate when they're heading to Bethlehem and the star shows them the house that they're going to. We also don't know how much they believed about the gifts that they brought to Jesus. The carol we just sang, on top of assuming that they were three, that they were kings, that they were from the Orient, that they traveled afar, also read into it the meaning that the church developed for these. Gold, that he was a king. Frankincense, that he was a deity, that he was God. And myrrh, that he was going to die, that he was going to have a burial spice. But we don't actually know how much of that they understood or how much of that was simply what you would give the birth of a newborn king. So you, I hope you can see that the story in the Bible is actually really simple. And even some of the things we assume are in the story are not actually in the text. So it makes sense then that like we sort of wonder about where they were from or what they were thinking or how they got there, um, that the early church did the same thing. And so what we find is a lot of artwork, a lot of stories, a, a, a lot of different legends that come up that start to fill in some of the gaps. I mean, what, what, what they found special about this story really didn't change. What's the core of this story? Core of this story is a group of people who were not Jewish. They were Gentile. 
And they come and they worship Jesus as king. They recognize Jesus as king. Herod doesn't. The other people that say where Jesus is going to be born, they, they don't go worship. But these Gentiles, this is the first non-Jewish Christian worship service. And so for the early Christians, this was a very important thing because that's us. I mean, for the most part, most of us are not Jewish, right? We're Gentile. And so these were the first among us that got to worship Jesus. But over time, the church started to fill some of those gaps in. The story grew and grew. And part of what the church wanted to do was to fit the scripture with some other scriptures. I gave you a few of those in the bulletin. One is, there's a prophecy of Balaam. It comes from the book of Numbers. If you remember the story, Balaam is supposed to go curse Israel. But uh, he ends up getting stopped because there's an angel in a way. He can't see the angel, but his donkey can. So his donkey talks, ends up talking to him about this. And eventually Balaam makes this prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star comes out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And so the early church wondered if this idea of this person Balaam can't see yet, a scepter, that's what a king uses, being marked by a star, if Balaam is actually where the Magi get the idea that this star is the birth of, marks the birth of a king. Then there are two psalms I've given you there that talk about kings bearing gifts to God. And then there is this very interesting passage in Isaiah 60 that I want to read this morning. It says, Arise! Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your son shall come from afar, your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall, be, shall thrill and exult. Because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. And here we go, everybody. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those around Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Okay, so Matthew doesn't say that they're kings. Matthew doesn't say that there's a camel. Matthew has another gift. So a lot of people have suggested that maybe Matthew makes this story up to fit with this. But if he was making this up, he could have done a better job, right? Call them kings, call them from this place. And, and by the way, Matthew loves Old Testament prophecy. All the time, Matthew's pointing out where... So Matthew doesn't make this connection the same way the church seems to later. But you can see probably here why the church recognizes some of this story in there and why some of the details start to come out about kings, right? About them following the star. About camels. There is no camels in Matthew's version. But, but man, Isaiah makes a big deal about camels, over time, then, the story seems to move. And, and uh, the early church wrote these, these books. They're called the apocryphal books. They're, they're not in our Bible. They're more like fictional accounts of things. But, but Christians were fascinated by this story. So they started to expand 
I gave you a, a list of a couple of the major ones about the Magi there that you can look up for yourself later. But I, I want to just talk about a few of the changes that start to make in the story. One is the star. In the, in the stories, a lot of times the star is then seen as this really large thing. How many of you have seen on Christmas cards, the star is like so bright and it shines a light like right in front of the wise men. So that it's sort of guiding them. That comes out of this tradition. But also the idea that the star was actually an angel starts to show up. In, the, in, the early, in, the, in those times, they didn't know what stars were. They didn't know the earth was round. They didn't know what star, They thought there was some sort of dome over this flat sphere of an earth that the stars were up there and that the gods moved stars. Or a lot of people thought the stars were what? Angels. And so even in our Christmas traditions today, on our Christmas trees, you can either have a star or an angel. Our nativity sets are the same way. As to the identity of the wise men, the number and their names, those sort of develop with legend too. In the Syriac church, some of the oldest versions of the wise men that we have, there's 12 wise men. Okay, But eventually they sort of settle on three, which really is the number of the gifts, not necessarily the number of the men. And they're given a number of names in different contexts, but eventually we sort of get this resting on these main names. Uh, they're often portrayed as multi, uh, from multiple ages. So a lot of your nativity sets, I talked about this Christmas Eve, one of the wise men probably has a long gray beard. One of the wise men probably has a shorter brown beard. And one of the wise men has short or no beard at all. Because a lot of the wise men are portrayed, even in nativity sets today, as being 20, 40, and 60 years old. Um, and they're also multi-ethnic. So there's stories that talk about them coming from different places. Uh, Malkiar is often portrayed as the king of Persia. Caspar or Gasper coming from the Orient, maybe from India or from China. Balthazar eventually becomes known as the king of Arabia or even based on some of these Psalms and some of these Isaiah works coming from Ethiopia, making him African. So how many of you have a nativity set with multi-ethnic wise men in it? Okay. A lot of times it depends on if the person you painted knew this or not. Um, but you can see that in your passages. So I, I hope you can see how what the people started to do is fill in these stories. They were so fascinated by them, but they wanted to fill in some of the details and to represent these wise men as being from all peoples, from all over the place, from different ages. The, central, the center of the story, though, remains the same, Jesus as king. But then the stories get really weird. So let me tell you a couple of the, the weirder Christmas stories. And again, I'm not saying this is the Bible. These are definitely not the Bible. But it's kind of fun to think about how the church imagines some of these things. So there's one story called the Armenian Gospel in the, in the Armenian Gospel of Infancy, where Gabriel comes to Persia. So the angel Gabriel goes to Persia, sees the Magi. And in that story, the Magi are great military leaders. And they bring 12,000 troops all to pledge loyalty to Jesus. And do you know who does not like this? Herod. Herod is not real interested in the pledging of allegiance to Jesus, particularly by troops. So Herod goes to talk to them. And um, the Magi tell Herod that they have a secret document that from generation to generation has been passed down in the old, through the Old Testament stories and have been added to by Adam by Seth, by Noah, by Abraham, by Melchizedek. 
When Herod hears this, he tries to arrest them and steal the document, but the army is too big and too strong, and so Herod can't do anything. They find Jesus, they give them, he gives them the gifts. This is probably the first time the gifts are described, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh in their meaning. And then the next day they come back and they give Jesus this scroll that has been passed down through all the Old Testament. They stay a third day and then they return home. In the Revelation of the Magi, the, the story is a little bit different. It introduces a little bit larger theme beyond this one document called the Cave of Treasures. In the Cave of Treasures, there's this legend that in Persia, which is where the Garden of Eden was, according to the text, by the rivers, um, there's this special cave that Adam started and that great, great people of the faith had put into great treasures all throughout the Old Testament history. So all the great characters made journeys to go to this cave to give gifts for the coming Messiah. And uh, including a document and including genealogies. In the Revelation of Magi, the star comes and leads the Magi there to collect gifts from the entire Old Testament. That's what the gold and frankincense and myrrh are. Those are just representative of this larger setup of gifts. In the story of uh, the Revelation of the Magi, the star has magical sort of powers. Okay, the star actually not only guides them, it's a pillar of light. It prepares campsites. It levels mountains they can't get over. It enables them to walk on water to cross rivers, helps them deal with snakes and beasts, and multiplies their food rations. And if you actually read the story, the, the, the strange story telling of the star, not only does it sort of sound like an angel, but it does a lot of the things that God does in the Old Testament. When they finally get to the house, the pillar of light comes down with two angels and they give Jesus, they call Jesus the treasure of salvation and they unload this cave of treasures. Now again, this is a fictional account, so this is not what I think happened, but it is, isn't it kind of a neat way to represent the entire Old Testament preparing for Jesus? Right? The entire Old Testament kept record, kept gifts, kept looking forward. And in fact, in that story, that Jesus is a little bit older and he actually talks to the wise men, the magi. And what he says is, watch the skies because they're going to tell you something later in my life. There's going to come a moment when the skies are going to go dark. And when the skies go dark, you're going to know that I'm on the cross, that I'm actually accomplishing what I came to do. Again, fictional account, but isn't it kind of a creative account? of looking ahead to what Jesus came to do and also looking behind at how the Old Testament leads to this. There are also legends about what happened to the Magi. Uh, John of Hildesheim, uh, a 14th century Carmelite friar, wrote a book called The History of the Three Kings. And what he said was that, that one year, just before Christmas, well after the birth of Jesus, but the wise men were still alive, the same star came up in the sky. And the Magi understood that their time on earth was coming to an end. Melchior died on the Feast of Circumcision. That's eight days after Christmas. Balthasar died on Epiphany, 12 days after Christmas. And then uh, they were both about 100 years old. Gaspar then died six days later, and they were buried in the same tomb. According to this John... Not long after they were buried, Constantine's mother, named Helena, came to this region, found out where they were buried, 
and actually dug up the bones. Exhumed the bones of the wise men. The bones of the wise men were then taken to Constantinople, put in the Church of Holy Wisdom. Then after she and Constantine both died, the bones were taken to Milan, where Christians were being persecuted. And so the bones of the wise men were sent there to a church to encourage those Christians to stay strong amongst persecution. Uh, there's a sarcophagus in that church uh, to this day, but then the bones were supposedly moved to Cologne, Germany. That's the sarcophagus of gold pictured in your bulletin that I showed you today. There are plenty of other legends of where they are buried and what happened to their bones, but this is the one that probably catches the most traction. Now for a real story, interesting historical story. There was a time when, as Islam was growing uh, closer to 500, uh, Muslims from up in the Persia area were coming through Israel and were destroying both Jewish and Christian worship sites. They were coming through and just wiping out churches. But one of the churches that was spared by those warring Muslims was the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. And the reason for that was because they came into the church ready to destroy it, and there painted on the wall were three magi. And they had Persian names, and they were wearing Persian clothes. So that's one of the reasons why the Church of the Nativity has some of the oldest parts that you can find in any church in the world today, because the magi, in a funny way, saved that church. Aren't these kind of weird and interesting? They're strange. Yeah, they're fiction, right? But here's what I, as I, as I was reading about the Magi and thinking it through, I thought, you know, these Christians cared about this story so much that they put it on their tombs and they told stories about it and people wrote songs about it. And we don't care about Epiphany at all. <laughs> like, I wonder how many of us walked in today and didn't remember it was even Epiphany. I wonder how many of us walked in the sanctuary today and were like, why are the Christmas decorations still up? Well, it's Epiphany. This is when we're supposed to leave them up until. Right? I, I wonder if, maybe we, maybe we don't need all these weird legends and we don't need stars that knock down mountains for us and all this stuff. But I wonder if the core of this story, the simple Magi story at the middle of it, was something special that we should keep. This idea of coming to Christ the King. Maybe this simple, beautiful story of the Magi should be enough for us. But maybe it should be a lot more important to us as we think about giving our gifts and our worship to Christ our King. So maybe it's time we really rediscover and appreciate the Magi again. That they may lead us to worship Christ the King and, may, and recognize Him with the gift of our lives.